Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. With me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we are hot on the heels of some Corset 2020 action. Yep, just popped onto Arena yesterday, spent all sort day... Of. Yeah, for some people. I, I got in right away. I had literal no troubles whatsoever. I woke up, clicked on Arena, and it loaded right up. But I understand my experience was not the common one yesterday. Yeah, it must be nice, man. Anyway, continue, man. Keep talking about Arena and M20. Let's go. I'm sorry I interrupted you. <laughs> That's okay. I thought, I thought you were excited to tell me more about your horrible experience in the queues. But no, my experience was great. Uh, I spent most of the day, most of the night actually playing and uh, learning things very quickly, seeing exactly where I went wrong, where I was right, and finding a lot of power in this set. And it's funny because you go back just a couple weeks and everyone was kind of snoozing on this set, not really too excited about it, not thinking it was going to do a whole lot. And the more I play, the more I realize there's some home runs in here. And honestly, there could be like a straight up shift in this format because there's these weirdo powerful engines that are really, really exciting. And a lot of decks going very large with their mana, cheating on mana in some places, and just doing so much more than I thought this set was capable of. Yeah, same. Uh, I initially thought that the set was pretty medium, and then I was like, whoa, this might be like War of the Spark territory. And I've kind of come down on that a little bit. I do feel like you said there are a lot of engines and build arounds, which for me is very cool for standard. Mm -hmm. But because of that, and it's not like there's a lot of individual power level necessarily all over the place. It is mostly just about these engines, how good they are, and how those decks are going to be built going forward. That's been my experience as well. Some of the more, I guess, fair things, I would say, have kind of been underwhelming. I mean, there's there's cards that I recognize as good and meaningful, but in the face of the bigger stuff, I'm just not getting as excited about them. I'm, I'm, I'm finding a lot of free mana all over the place, Jerry. And when you find free mana, things often go very... They go in a very powerful direction, a very unfair direction where just playing like a two drop creature no longer is all that exciting to me. I'm looking to draw cards and just kind of go off at this point. If it's free, it's for me. Is yeah, that your catchphrase? Absolutely. Every time when it comes to Magic the Gathering, if it's free, it's me. Yeah, I'm, I'm basically right there with you. Uh, one thing I will note, though, while there are a lot of engines and build around stuff, the, the thing that kind of weirds me out is how much a lot of the existing shells gained from a lot of these engine cards. So while I think things are going to change, I think a lot of it is going to stay the same as well. And Simic strikes me as the big gainer from this set, mostly on the back of Risen Reef. Yeah. So for the third set in a row, I have somehow undervalued a Simic card. It was previously Hydroid Crisis. Then it was Tamiyo, and immediately, like the two days after the set came out, I'm like, boy, these cards are stupid and certainly should have been in my top 10. And this time it's Risen Reef, and I'm saying the exact same things. It's so innocuous on its face. It's like the first trigger makes the card fine, and then if you ever get a second trigger, it's just absolutely bonkers. And then when you get multiple triggers, it's basically unbeatable. So... Risen Reef was in my top 10. I believe I had it at number eight. And mm. the reason I had it so low was I thought it was just an Elementals card. But 
the thing with Risen Reef is you don't need that many more elementals if you have like a cavalier in your deck or wild growth walker or just anything really it basically means that they must kill risen reef on site otherwise you threaten to snowball the game and that means that risen reef can show up in a lot of different places and granted all of those decks are base simic decks but at the same time there are a lot of different simic shells in standard and risen reef is basically going to be a part of all of them yeah, I'm finding a lot of success with those smaller packages. Why don't we go ahead and read Risen Reef, just because these cards are still new, and I want to make sure everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. It's the 1-1 elemental for one colorless, one green, one blue, and when it enters the battlefield, or any other ele- elemental enters the battlefield, you get to look at the top card of your library, land goes onto the battlefield, anything else goes into your hand. You mentioned this, the small packages, the wild growth walker stuff. It's good enough. You just don't have to go that hard, and then... Let's not even talk about what goes on when you're in the pure elementals deck. Right. Well, it's also worth noting that if it's a land, you may put it onto the battlefield tapped. I've had situations come up where I actually just need to make my land drop for the turn and get the Mm -hmm. mana from it. So I'll just draw that card. Mm, Good point. Yeah. And if you don't put a land onto the battlefield, you put that card in your hand, you don't reveal it. It's not like Corsair or Corling Oracle or anything like that. Like they don't know what spell you drug. Right. And that comes up a lot, especially out of Simic Colors, where you have access to counter magic, uh, access to a little bit trickier cards. Risen Reef definitely appreciating the fact that it's keeping some of the information hidden. What has been your main home run with Risen Reef? Where are you playing this chiefly? Or is it just everywhere for you right now? Uh, kind of everywhere because the Simic shells are so robust. And they. I, I find myself just like cutting, you know, all-star A-pluses from my deck list, right? Because there's so much competition at basically every spot on the curve now, uh, especially at five mana. Like last season, we saw Nissa Who Shakes the Worlds basically just be the best engine for these Simic decks. And now yep. it's like, well, do I play Nissa? Do I play Cavalier of Thorns? Do Do I like mix and match do i just play like seven or eight five drops i don't know uh but basically simic no matter how you build it is going to be very good at eventually getting a huge mana advantage through like ramping or mana creatures or the planeswalkers or cavalier of thorns whatever then you just have to find something busted to do with it and hydroid crisis is another one of those cards that i've kind of found myself cutting and you know trying to make room for all these other cool cards to play with which then in turn makes my tamios worse because i don't have a lot of four ofs but regardless i I think it is just about finding the most busted thing to do and the thing that will kind of allow you to go over the top in most mirror matches and right now specifically i think it's flood of tears but it could be nexus of fate there's Uh, A lot of different options, like I said, but I'm going to read Flood of Tears because this one was not on our radar at all. Nope, and we messed up. Free mana. Uh, Okay, so this this is for UU Sorcery. Return all non-land permanents to their owner's hands. If you return four or more non-token permanents you control this way, you may put a permanent card from your hand onto the battlefield. So either you reset the board and... You know, bounce some of your things with ETB triggers, your Risen Reefs, whatever, and then you deploy a Cavalier of Thorns or something along those lines. Or you're playing a bunch of cantrippy setups like Utopia Sprawl, I think is the name of the card, Guild Globe, uh, again, Risen Reef, and then you put Omniscience onto the battlefield. You have things like Tamiyo uh, that can be cast for free off Omniscience. You can get the Flooded Tears back, basically lock your opponent out of the game, and then... With each loop of this, 
you can draw a card off a guild globe or whatever, eventually find Jace, wielder of mysteries, and win the game. Yeah, and Yeoman 5 was the first one I saw really working on the kind of omniscience flood of tears setup, and it caught my eye. But I I want to play good magic cards, and that deck right. has a lot of very bad ones, and uh, it kind of requires you drawing all your pieces in proper order and putting everything together. And the entire time, you're just staying off the battlefield for the most part, like your opponent's just attacking at will, and they can just kill you before you get all this set up online. So what I've moved to now, and this has been by far my most promising post M20 deck, is a Flood of Tears deck with a very, very large Cavalier package. Six Cavaliers, in fact, four Cavalier of Thorns, which, by the way, I mean, maybe it's too early to celebrate because the card actually has to make some inroads in tournaments before I get proven right on this one. But this card is the truth. No, it doesn't. No, you're just ready? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can call it pretty safely. It took me exactly one game of playing with the card to be like, yep, I was right about this. And I don't want to toot my own horn too much because, look, I got a bunch of stuff wrong in this set. So even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. But uh, in this case, Cavalier of Thorns has just absolutely proven to be the truth. And so the setup I'm using is just Leyline of Abundance, which is another free mana engine that we're going to have to get into. But Leyline of Abundance, a bunch of mana dorks, you ramp into Cavaliers very quickly. At some point, you play Flood of Tears, replay your Cavalier for free, which is pretty much unbeatable in a lot of spots. And then that generates more mana and more mana and more mana. And and eventually, you just have the 10 mana every turn to go ahead and Tamiyo Flood of Tears over and over and over, still accumulating an advantage this entire time, eventually playing even more spells while you're doing this loop. And the game gets out of control very quickly. And you mentioned maybe Nexus of Fate, something you could be doing instead of this Flood of Tears setup. And you and I were talking a bit about this yesterday. I tried the Nexus of Fate payoffs for these same type of decks. I think Flood of Tears is just better. I think it does more. I think it manages more problems. I'm kind of dumbstruck at just how good this card is and how much of a focal point I could see it being. But again, this is all like in this magical world where you can just play six mana sorceries with no cost whatsoever that Teferi is supposed to inform. But at some point that has to break down, right? Like the format can't just be this. Well, there's there's not a lot of mono red presence. The vampires decks aren't very tuned. I see a lot of people playing like more mid range styles of decks, and yeah, basically no one is playing Esper mid range right now or Esper Control because it hasn't gotten a lot of new cards. So we'll see actual metagame shifts uh, in the coming days for sure. But right now, people are just trying out the new cards. So I I want to read some of these cards. I want to talk about Cavalier of Thorns as someone who did not have it on their top ten. And talk about my experience with it. So Cavalier of Thorns is two. GGG, 5-6 creature, Elemental Knight, Reach. When this enters the battlefield, reveal the top five cards of your library. Put a land card from among them onto the battlefield and the rest in their graveyard. When this dies, you may exile it. If you do, put another target card from your graveyard on top of your library. So 5-6 Reach is enormous. It's an elemental, so it works with Risen Reef. It is in the Risen Reef colors. It will basically always ramp you. I have yet to miss with this card, and a lot of my decks have, you know, 24 to 27 lands, so mm-hmm. you're, you're getting a lot of looks at this. If you hit, like, a Memorial to Genius or 
uh, Scryland or something, like you're getting a little bit of extra value there too. And then a lot of these Simic decks are just about ramping and setting up and then doing some big thing. And Cavalier enables that big thing. Like imagine this with Command the Dreadhorde. Not only are you filling your graveyard, but this is doing the Tamiyo thing of like actually finding your big payoff card too. And, you know, Hydra Creases is another thing that you can put in your decks as a proxy payoff card. Yeah, all these setups have been fantastic for me. The body just shuts down it's any so offense big. from your opponent. It blocks absolutely everything. The access that green has to fast mana fundamentally changes this card. And that's really the missing piece here is that right. maybe the Cavaliers as a cycle can be a little bit underwhelming on their face as five mana cards. And I buy that for all the other Cavaliers. But with all the mana that green is getting access to, plus Risen Reef, where you're getting additional payoffs from this card, it has been an absolute slam dunk for me. And I'm pretty sure it's just like, I, I can't stop building decks with it because every deck I build around it just feels so much more powerful than everything else I'm doing. You never run out of stuff to do. And Risen yep. Reef is a ramp card sometimes, but also just a draw engine. And yep. Cavalier of Thorns is like, Attacker, blocker, plus ramp card, plus extra value from like putting things in your graveyard or like getting special lands. And then it just, if they do kill it, you get your big card. So all of these cards are doing like double, triple duty in a lot of cases. And like you said, the mana acceleration that exists currently is just kind of busted to the point where we can talk about Leyline of Abundance now and how sure. I like Yo Man 5's deck, but I don't like the fact that. Like you said, you're just dirtling around, playing a bunch of cantrips, not really defending yourself, whereas you can build a more proactive version of this deck with mana creatures, with Leyline of Abundance, and actually have a proactive game plan. So Leyline is 2GG enchantment. If this is in your opening hand, you may begin the game with it on the battlefield. Whenever you tap a creature for mana, add an additional G, and 6GG, put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature you control. I have used that ability it is a decent way to utilize a bunch of excess mana. But if, if you open with this into Llanowar Elf, or even, you know, you don't have your Llanowar Elf, you just have a Scryland on turn one, and then an Incubation Druid, or any of the other million two mana, mana dorks, you have five mana on turn three, which enables Cavalier of Thorns, and you're just off to the races. Have you, have you played the turn two Tamiyo yet? Uh, I have not had four mana on turn two yet. What a silly, silly situation to be in. I mean, those are the type of numbers which are supposed to be reserved for modern. You need like Arbor Elf Utopia Sprawl setups to even get to that point in modern. It's not something that really ever happens. And here you're able to find it in standard with honestly very little work. Plus, we just picked up the London Mulligan, so it's much easier to set up these Leyline hands. Now, granted, it's card investment. And at some point, like I said, this all feels a little bit like nonsense right now. We're just getting to do whatever we want. And Dude, at some all point, your cards, all your cards pay you. Like the, yeah. the Risen Reefs, the Cavaliers, the the Krasises, Nissa, uh, Tamio. Like all those cards give you such a huge advantage. I feel like I don't need seven cards every game. That That's a very good point. But at some point, your 12 mana dork creature deck is going to get punished. And it's yeah, not right now. I'll, I'll say that authoritatively, but like right. I did play a game against Ritual of Soot and I'm like, oh, that card's absolutely impossible to beat. I haven't seen it in ages, but like it could come back at any point and really put a damper on this type of strategy. But as long as it doesn't exist, this just feels next level broken, like mana production that, as I said, not typically seen in standard. 
Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of problematic. Like green has so many good options right now, and specifically green blue. It's it's just like overwhelming to me. The the fact I have like six different Simic decks built on Arena right now, and they all seem oh, very same. good. Same, and you know we're talking about the Flood of Tears setup. I've done Flood of Tears plus Scape Shift before, basically like Risen Reef Cavalier Scape Shift, and eventually set up the colorless land card that produces zombies. What's the name of that card? I'm blanking. Field on it right of the now. Dead. Field of the Dead. Yeah, and. I'm not saying this deck is a home run. I think it has some things to figure out, but Field of the Dead reads, Field of the Dead enters the battlefield tapped. Whenever Field of the Dead or another land enters the battlefield under your control, if you control seven or more lands with different names, create a 2-2 black zombie creature token. I've put like a preposterous number of tokens into play before pretty easily, just playing some reasonable magic in the early turns, just going Risen Reef into Cavalier of Thorns, and then next thing you know, my scape shift's online, and dumping its entire hand onto the battlefield that setup works and then there's just old nexus of fate that's sitting around and i've been playing cavalier of thorns in that as well which on its face doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense but when you start to think of everything it actually does it can pressure opposing planeswalkers it gets you closer to your nexus of fate mana it juices your graveyard for search for content it shrinks your library when you're trying to hit nexuses and key spots it's just playing defense and blocking because it's impossible to kill because it's tremendous and all of those things working together actually i think make it a fine inclusion you were seeing nissa in the five mana slot i think cavalier of thorns is just better in nexus of fate and that deck is kind of fun policing the format a little bit very well because it goes even a little bit over the top of this other type of rampy nonsense we're talking about where it just takes control of the game once it hits seven mana and doesn't give a turn back to its opponent. Do you want to you want to have like a, a kind of deeper dive here? So I, I did not play on Arena last month basically at all because there was like no real standard tournament to play. Limited's dead. I wasn't right. really paying attention to the Mythic Championship. And I logged on and I think in my first five matches, three of them were against Nexus. And I just kind of like forgotten that that won the tournament and like did pretty well overall. So I was like, oh, what the hell? Like, this seems like such a bad matchup for, you know, my dirtily <laughs> Cavalier of Thorns deck or whatever. Right. But then I just have this sideboard where I have like two Disdainful Strokes, some Aether Gusts, some Shifting Ceratops, and I just destroy them. We keep coming up against cards that I really want to talk about and I'm really excited about, which shows how good this set is. But you mentioned Ethergust, which I think is a pretty meaningful card out of this it's busted. hate spell cycle. Yeah, it really gives you an incredible amount of versatility because not only is it defending you against aggressive decks, such as the Gruul decks, such as Mono Red, it's so good against the Nexus decks, managing their Wilderness Reclamation. Kind of surprising how many places this is hitting. But you're right, sideboard options are very, very good right now. And again, when we're talking about color-hating cards, that references Shifting Ceratops, which certainly is going to merit some discussion on its own. Yes. It, it was it's just bizarre to me where they're like, you know, these these old school Nexus decks, I, I don't think get it done. And it's kind of similar to uh Yo Man 5's Flood of Tears setup, right? Where it's just like you're you're playing this defensive role, and I don't think you can really afford to do that. So your your addition of Cavalier of Thorns to Nexus, or even, you know, playing some mana dorks, maybe not like the ley line of abundance package and all that stuff, but just like a few and going a little bit more proactive makes a ton of sense to me. And then that would allow you to shift into like a sideboard plan that is kind of fish based. Right. And 
I, I do have Ceratops in my sideboard for exactly that purpose, as well as a bunch of counter spells. So I can just beat down and take the game that way. But I, I think that among the engine cards that Simic picked up, these sideboard cards certainly bear mention as well. Shifting Ceratops, Cerulean Drake, Ether Gust, and Veil of Summer, which I was really high on at first. I'm just not seeing a lot of Veil of Summer. And I don't know if that's just people are low on it or it's not the right time for it right now. You mentioned oh, no, not they, a ton of Esper around. They have it, I assure you. Uh, yeah, you've <laughs> basi- seen it? Yeah, basically any time I've tried to play a Thought Erasure tech, I get failed in all of the post-board games. It's awful. Okay, so they're just coming after you specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're coming after me. I, I built some Sultai Scapeshift deck that was just an abomination. It was awful. But getting your Thought Erasure Veil of Summer does not feel good. Uh, I I think it is difficult because it's like kind of hard to line that up, but fails really not that bad. Like even if you draw it on turn five, it still counters the like their removal spell or whatever, and you get some good value out of it. So uh, it was it was mostly just like playing against elementals and them just like protecting their omnaths and stuff like that. So it, it's there, it's out there. People are playing it, they're loving it. Uh, so far, Aether Gust has been the one that has impressed me the most, just because. The versatility on it is sick, and yes, your opponent gets to choose top or bottom, which is like kind of annoying. But I, I think I played like two matches before I even really realized that I could use it as a counter spell. Yeah, surprise! It's got some yeah, extra functions. Why? why? I, I can't tell you why, but it certainly upgrades exactly how powerful this is. And I've been in a spot too where, like, against opposing Nissas, you just. Ether Gust on their draw step, so they've drawn for the turn, and you put you Gust at that point and give them a choice yeah. whether they want to put it on top for their next turn. And that's been very meaningful. So I'm finding a lot of uses for Ether Gust. Very impressed with that card. If you're not familiar with it, one color is one blue. Choose target spell or permanent that's red or green. Its owner puts it on top or bottom of their library. Choice goes to the controller. But like you said, you're let them choose whatever they want. You've done the important work once you've cast it. Yeah, I mean when they when they put it on top, it's fine. They're they're skipping a draw step. I am completely happy with that. And when they put it on bottom, it's just like, all right, I just dark banished your thing for two mana. And right. it, I I've had the situations come up like as as soon as I realized it, where it's like they cast a Nissa and then you you Aether Gust it. It's just like, good God. It's disgusting. Yeah. Very, very powerful hate card. I mean, is this the time where we want to touch on these other ones as well? Do you want to talk a little bit more about Ceratops and its role in the format. Yeah, sure. So shifting Ceratops, uh, 2GG, 5-4, Dinosaur, can't be countered, pro blue, can pay G to give Ceratops your choice of reach, trample, or haste until end of turn. This thing's a beater. Can't be countered. Uh, a lot of decks post-board, and I, I guess this was like coming from the Nexus side of things, where it's like they'll try and have Disdainful Stroke for your big play or negate or whatever, and you just play this thing, and you have this huge clock on them. Uh, four yeah. toughness, is pretty nice for kind of beating through Nissa lands and stuff. It's very good at killing planeswalkers. I have yet to play against a Teferi, but I imagine that is just busted there. And if you have some mana dorks, Risen Reef, maybe Cavalier of Thorns, you add this to the mix and some counter spells, like you, ha- you have a nice package for like being able to ramp, deploy a threat, disrupt your opponent a little bit and for for things like creature based flood of tears i was just siding out like my floods and my omnis against mm-hmm. decks like nexus and just beating beating them to death like this and it was hella fun yeah and it works and you're playing this ahead of curve so 
it, it's it's a real clock. Four mana five fours are still good enough this this day and age. And I think just the existence of this card, despite how many ads mono blue really got, this is always going to be a problem. And we we mentioned Ether Gust. That's a way to deal with it for a turn if it's on the stack. Uh, right. It actually does not counter the spell. It just puts it on the top or bottom. So that buys you a little bit of time. But beyond that, what are your options here? Like, are you going back to transmogrifying wand or something like that? Or are you just losing to Ceratops in every spot? And I think if the answer is you're just losing to Ceratops, given the state of things right now, that's kind of an unacceptable outcome. Yeah, I, I played a decent amount with mono blue because I was interested in trying to figure out the correct build because now you have Fairy Mist Green and Spectral Sailor as additional one drops. Right. Uh, you have the wind words or whatever divination that becomes a two mana draw to if you have a creature with flying you have a lot of good sideboard options now too with the color hosers and the three drop yanling yeah i it, it just seemed very good to me but yeah you can basically never beat a ceratops assuming that they're doing something else you know like obviously if if all they're doing is like turn four ceratops like you're probably going to beat them mm-hmm. but yeah, Aether Gusts has just been incredible. And I initially thought it might be Cerulean Drake, the uh, two-drop, 1-1 uh, one, one flying pro-red creature that helps that deck the most. But no, it's it's Aether Gust. Cerulean Drake, interesting as well, though. I mean, specifically in the Nexus setups where they struggled for so long with that mono-red matchup. And now, since I want Ceratops anyway against mono-red in the Nexus build, I've just been sideboarding Cerulean Drake, shifting Ceratops. So eight cards in, I already have Cavalier of Thorns and I'm just like this big beefy deck that they can never attack through. And eventually I'll just take all the turns and I find the time now against Mono Red where you never did in the past. So I think that's another big upgrade for Nexus and a point in its favor. Certainly any of these blue green decks can kind of take on the same setup, but for Nexus, the fact that it's kind of a compact package that you want in different spots makes it really appealing to me. You're getting a lot of coverage out of Ceratops and your deck is just taking on this whole nother aspect that it never had before where it can close games so quickly behind its beef. It's, it's really a turning point for not only Nexus, but all these blue green decks. Yeah. And it's so much better than something like biogenic ooze. Oh yeah, absolutely. No one, no one was ever happy playing biogenic ooze, but it was like the most impactful card that you could have for five mana and, now right. it's just like, yeah, move over. We're not trying to do that. We're just going to beat you to death with Ceratops. And- or like Ripjaw Raptor. Like this blows away oh, Ripjaw yeah. Raptor in every possible way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the only difference there is four toughness versus five against red, but it, it's still serviceable. It's still very good. Right. And like red has to be bringing in their their lava coils against you, which like, okay, go ahead. I mean, it's still it's still blank on eight of my creatures, right? And if you're banking on your lava coils and slowing down your clock that way, I'm I'm pretty okay with that exchange. No, that's true. I mean, if they have no way to get through Cerulean Drake, you're going to have enough time anyway. But yes, yeah, Cerulean Drake, I think, is a, a card that we will turn to in certain metagames. But mm-hmm. for the most part, like you just play Aethergust instead. Aethergust is so good against like, what, 70% of the decks, 60% of the of decks. decks? Yeah, a lot of coverage. And I just kept finding more and more spots to use it. It was kind of... Kind of incredible. I bring it in against Nexus and they have like eight cards, basically, you know? Sure, that's fine. So yeah, very, very impressed with a lot of these cards so far. Uh, A lot of Simic love in this set and Simic was already quite good. We haven't even like talked about, you know, things like mass manipulation, which existed a lot or, 
using Cavalier of Thorns to fire off the uh, white finale, finale of glory, I think. So sure. all of this sounds great to me, honestly, yeah. all of it. It's, it's incredible how, how much these strategies have solidified under the weight of Cavalier of Thorns and just having this beautiful bridge between multiple game plans. And again, Risen Reef, like mm-hmm. make, make no mistake. A lot of this stuff is possible because of Risen Reef and how strong sure. it is. And I, I think that going forward, we're probably just going to be a Risen Reef podcast, maybe just a Simic podcast in general. Well, at least we'll stop missing these cards when it comes time to do our top tens. And Yo, it was, if we're only focused on Simic, we'll probably get them all. It was on my top ten. I thought it was busted. I just thought that you needed more engine cards. and it, that I know. You, you did better than I did this time. But we did miss the last two. Like, that's indisputable. Neither one of yeah. us hit on Tamiyo or... Hydroid Crisis, which oh, in yeah, retrospect yeah. is very silly. I mean, Crisis, it, it still seems mopey to me, where it's like, obviously, like none of the rates are great, but just like having this card that is good at any point in the game, like having this big mm-hmm. payoff card that that scales for as much mana as you have, is obviously super important. I, that one, I, I just don't think was like an acceptable miss, especially because it's like a mythic has a bunch of text. Like it's just one of those things where it's like, I'm pretty sure this card is supposed to be good. And sometimes that doesn't work out. Yeah. Tamiyo is like this weird card where it's just like, oh, where does it go? Like the, these Simic decks didn't exist before Tamiyo really. And now it's like right. so easy to see like, oh yeah, like you just, you know, Name name Hydrocrisis, right? Like, I think if anyone would have sure. told me that, I would have been like, oh, yeah. Nexus of Fate. I mean, that, that's well, the real one where it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, that was that was on you, man. Yeah, I guess so. That's your, that's your wheelhouse. Opinions on that card, and this isn't to drag anyone. I mean, like I said, card evaluation is hard. We get things wrong all the time. But I saw people straight up calling the card unplayable and very knowledgeable people who you would expect very good card evaluations from just thought it was one of the worst planeswalkers ever made were words I saw yeah. bandied about, about Tamiyo. And I it doesn't like, protect itself. Well, it has a right. lot of loyalty and at the very least you can just regrow it and have regrow something and then have it die, you know? Yep. Yeah. Loyalty is a form of protection. That's what we're very quickly learning about these planeswalkers. Right. Blue green also has like a reasonable amount of just sacrificial fodder on the ground that you can block with. So of course, of course. Anyway, as far as other Risen Reef type of things people are trying to do, a lot of Elementals decks out there. I saw uh, Emma Handy was the first person to really play like a very aggressive teamer shell, and I've tried it. I've, I've seen some different lists uh, since then, but I don't know. The, they're very capable of doing busted things with like Runaway Steamkin. And obviously Risen Reef, but at the same time, it's like your card quality is pretty low. You don't have, yep. you, you have one good one drop. And even then it's just a one mana one, one, you know? So I have not been super impressed by those decks. The mid range ones are things that I'm more in the market for. Like you get to play the wild growth Walker package. So you have another elemental that way. You're not going super hard on them. But you play Risen Reef and then Omnath. Omnath can pick off Planeswalkers and does kind of like a hydroid crisis thing where it just pays you the longer the game goes. And then obviously you get to play some Cavaliers, some Planeswalkers, whatever. Uh, so you don't have a combo finish like Command the Dreadhorde or whatever. But I have been reasonably happy with mid-range elementals not playing like Creeping Trailblazer, I think, is the one card that's just like horribly overplayed at this point when it just doesn't really do anything except be a grizzly bear. 
I'm right there with you. Have been completely, completely underwhelmed by the aggressive elementals decks. I mean, not only am I fairly convinced they're not good, like they have some fundamental flaws in their curve and their mana base, how much damage they do to themselves. Uh, they're also just like a worse version of the two other existing aggressive decks, mono red, mono white. I, I don't see a whole lot of reason to go in that direction. If your argument is the grind, then like, okay, but you're just not doing anything well. Like you're not, you have no upside to your deck. And the one four mana elemental that's in all these lists, names escaping me right now, it puts two one one elemental tokens onto the battlefield and gives all your elemental haste. Yeah. Uh, scampering Scorcher. That card is just trashed here. <laughs> and that being in constructed <laughs> no, decks is that, extremely problematic. That card that card is exactly fine as an enabler. I will agree that it's not a slam dunk four of or whatever. It is not a good card in a vacuum. I get why the aggro decks are playing some copies of it. But yeah, it's not a card I'm happy to put in my deck. So I played against Mono Red. And the matchup there was so I did laughable. Too. I did too. Chain in their favor. Chain Whirler's a joke. Yeah. It just destroys you. Completely unbeatable. But that's not to say there's nothing there for elementals. You mentioned the more mid-range shells. I like it. It's interesting. I think that elementals needs to take a step back, understand its identity a little bit more, and go longer. And again, Cavalier of Thorns is probably going to be a part of that. If you hit eight mana, you do have payoffs when it comes to Omnath. And you have to think about what other type of end games you can do. You have to really thread a needle, though, right? Because the game gets too long and you start falling victim to all this Simic stuff we're talking about that'll right. just go way over the top of you. And you you don't have the aggression of the red or white decks to kind of carry you through. So you need to really hit a spot where your defensive cards are good against those decks and you're still able to find the clock to pressure the decks that are trying to go over the top of you. And I haven't found that yet, but Omnath as a card has been impressive. And then obviously this is another spot where Arisen Reef just shines and those synergies, when they go off in this deck, they go off very, very hard. Yeah. And I, out of the aggressive deck, I've seen like turn three Chandra, turn four Risen Reef, and then zero the Chandra to make two elementals. And you just kind of go off from there. And that I think is sort of the appeal to playing a lower to the ground elementals deck where you are kind of mm -hmm. aggressive and you can grind. I agree that you can shift a red deck or a white deck into that. You don't have, you know, as as much combo-y potential with like Risen Reef and Omnath and stuff. You're just playing an experimental frenzy basically and hoping it sticks. And then there right. are things like vampires that have Icon of Ancestry, Champion of Dusk, New Soren Planeswalkers busted. Like it it lets them do the aggro but grindy thing a whole lot better than Elementals does. So yeah, we, we still need to figure out Elementals, I think. Yeah, needs its identity. And maybe it's time now for the vampires portion of the show, since you did mention those cards. You ready to talk about that kind of hot aggro deck, the number one deck for a lot of people coming out of the M20 release? Well, one thing I do want to mention real quick is that I had one of my opponents spark double their Omnath. Okay, that seems pretty good. Yeah, so that that's a thing that you can be doing. And spark double as like a second copy of your Risen Reef is expensive, but probably worth it. It is another five mana card. I'm not saying it's great. I'm just saying like, oh, hey, that's a thing I did not think about. And cloning these elementals is potentially very powerful. I could see that. Yeah, their their abilities get much better as they scale. Anyway, vampires. 
wow, people are playing a lot of bad cards in their vampires decks, and I don't understand why. So this, I think this hits perfectly on what I was just talking about, the worst deck problem. And I see a lot of people who are building vampires as a worse version of basically mono white, like trying to just be a low to the ground, derpy creature deck that's very aggressive. And those versions look very bad to me. Soren has truly impressed, kind of an incredible card as we thought it might be. It does everything this deck wants. Minusing to put your champion of dusk onto the battlefield feels so, so good. But the the hyper-aggressive builds for vampires, not impressing me whatsoever. So I think what you want to do is not play it like 18 to 20 land white weenie that currently Mm -hmm. exists. I think you want to build it more like Amonkhet Zombies, where you do have these one drops, you do have these two drops, you have like an aggressive curve and some ways to interact with your opponent, but your your biggest way that you win games is going to be like outvaluing people in the mid game, or at least creating like unwinnable board states. And to that end, I see like people kind of doing the thing that you're doing where they just play 21 drops, which I don't think is viable. And then there are people who play like four one drops and Haunt of High Towers and Vonas and Call of the Feasts and whatever the the aerialist, like this three mana, two, three flyer. Like what? How is that a card? For as bad as you think the, the four mana one, one elemental is, the aerialist <laughs> right. is so this much is worse. worse. I agree it's so you. much worse. It is. So yeah, I, I'll have an article on Star City uh, with a bunch of deck lists. You'll be able to see like, actual versions of the things that we're talking about on this podcast vampires among them is the one where i I just look at people's deck lists and i'm like what the hell are you doing uh and then you know i watch it play out and it's like they have haunt of high towers in their hand or like their aerialist thing is slow and derpy doesn't do anything and they're just like oh i guess vampires is bad right i think they kind of have missed the point there there there's something to this soren engine I just want to find a way to maximize it a little bit more. And I feel like some of the pieces we're using are not doing that. It may take some time to figure this out. I don't know if it's more just cards capable of being rebought or bodies that split into more bodies, a la like Alanda the Dusk Rose or Old Sworn Vampires coming back from the graveyard. Something to give it more grind, more presence, and to really take advantage of Soren a little bit more because like Soren has always been an incredible card. But I just find myself in spots where my deck lacks the tools to maximize it. And I think that's going to be the key of the Vampire's archetype is just finding a way to get the most out of Soren at all points in time. Step one, four champions. Like, I, I think it starts there. It is called champion, right? The five mana champion draw cards dusk. equal to the champion of dusk. Four champions is it's non-negotiable. It's the best card. It's the yeah. best card. I'm right there with you. I, I think you have to start there and then you can figure out what you're doing from that point. But Draw cards, be grindy, get card advantage. That's how you're going to win with your Vampire's deck. Yes, but in the meantime, you have to be pressuring them, right? So my list right now has 12 one drops, and I like them all a decent amount. Sky Marcher Aspirant, Knight of the Ebon Legion, and Legion's Landing. Mm -hmm. The thing that you're talking about where you end up with like Soren and your battlefield is like Sky Marcher Aspirant, Adanto Vanguard, or like Adanto Vanguard, legion lieutenant i definitely feel that like you don't have enough sacrificial fodder in a lot of situations there are things like legion's landing icon of ancestry champion of dusk and maverin fane which i 
I think is fine. It has not been like super impressive or whatever, but it does a good job of giving you an extra body every turn to be able to use with Soren. But I have thought about playing like more four drop Sorens or like Call of the Feast in small numbers or whatever, because I definitely do feel that sometimes. I don't think I want to go to like Dusk Legion Zealot or the one dub two one dies make a one one or O Sworn Vampire or anything like that, but it's possible. It is possible that you might need more grindy elements, but just having a beatdown deck with a bunch of anthems and like Soren into Champion of the Dusk makes me very happy. The deck has been very good for me. And then there's like six flex slots where I need to find out what actually fits there the best. Yeah, right there with you. And if we get those slots figured out, then this archetype definitely has potential. A card I want to circle back around, Icon of Ancestry. Not overwhelmed at this point with Icon in my vampires lists. It seemed like just slam dunk. I don't know if it's that I would rather be spending my mana elsewhere or I don't care about body sizing. Maybe that's actually what's going on here is getting bigger isn't really what this deck is looking for, but I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying I'm off the card. It just hasn't been as impactful as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, if you have other mana sinks going on, like if you're doing like Soren Champion of Dusk stuff, obviously you're just never going to be activating Icon. Mm. And then if you have Legion's Landing, it's like kind of a toss up, yep. uh, which one that you would actually rather be doing. But I, I, I started with three copies. I went down to two. I don't know if like lower curve plus icon, like, you know, maybe I cut, I'm looking at my list right now. I have like a Vona right now. That kind of sucks. I have a sore and vengeful blood Lord, which kind of does like a call of the feast thing, like giving you some more sacrificial bodies, but like also kind of sucks. I could see playing like Dusk Legion zealots in those slots. So then you have a little bit more velocity get to make your land drops a little bit more consistently and then maybe the icon is a little bit better in between the two of those. You can like grind a little bit more with Soren, but I don't know. I, I agree yeah. that sizing is maybe not huge, but it does matter. I mean, like you do try and grow your Knight of the Ebon Legions and stuff like that, and you do want your Adano Vanguards to be unblockable, and you already have Legion Lieutenant, so it kind of makes sense to like stack anthems. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Like the deck is not going super wide. Right. And that's another card you mentioned, Legion Lieutenant. It's just been incredibly mopey. And I feel like a card that has more text would be more relevant in that slot. Just body sizing is not what the deck is really looking for because you have Soren to lean on. It'll modify your body sizing. It makes blocks impossible. And if the game goes long enough, it'll just win on its own. Yeah. That combined with the card advantage engines that you have in place via champion are really what I want to maximize. So maybe Lieutenant is actually on the chopping block for me as well. I don't know. I think this archetype has been really interesting to explore. I don't feel like I have it figured out quite yet, but the one thing I will wholeheartedly endorse, Soren, incredibly, incredibly impactful Planeswalker. Very pleased with the card in general. Yeah. Yeah, I, I built three lists event or initially. One was hyper aggro. One was mid-range, uh, kind of based off the zombie deck. And then the other one was an aristocrats deck. And it is entirely possible that being more aristocracy, not necessarily playing Cruel Celebrant, but like not playing Legion Lieutenant, not worrying about actually antheming your creatures, but mm -hmm. just playing some, you know, sack outlet type things and card advantage type things might be a, a better direction for the archetype. I just felt like you could do the Soren Champion of Dusk thing and then still just get like brick walled and not be able to do anything like you have a bunch of one ones, but 
Yeah, maybe. And and also, let's keep in mind, too, the needle that we talked about previously for elementals that you have to thread where you can't just sit there and do this stuff forever because there are these huge Simic decks that'll just blow you out of the water and go over top of you. Right. You, you still have to have a clock. You have to have a meaningful clock or things will get out of hand very quickly. So it's a delicate balance you have to strike. Yeah. So either way, I, I do think this deck is strong. Maybe not tier one, maybe like, you know, 1.5. It just seems like the Simic decks have gotten too much at this point to not be fairly standalone in tier one really maybe it alongside esper yeah we'll have to see how it shakes out yep and then we talked about scape shift a little bit uh another thing that i i sent you a screenshot earlier this week and you're like oh i see that you've also gone crazy and i was doing things with uh karn the great creator and golos and <laughs> risen reef and was really having a lot of fun the thing that i did not like was that you you do your thing and you don't really like end the game right away where the, the other Simic decks basically do. This deck is hella fun, but also just kind of struggles, but uh, is doing a bunch of cool stuff that I like. Yeah, there's a real onus on the late game to be like maximized right now. And I think there's so many hard punishes in the late game that things like Ugin are made to look pretty silly in a lot of spots. It's you're reinvesting six mana where in other spots you would instead nexus of fate or you would steal two permanents and the impact is just not there right now for standalone big planeswalkers it's one of the reasons why liliana is just like gone from the format you can get so much more for that investment uh accomplish so much more towards your overall game plan and just standalone threats like that not really shining right now yeah but i mean a lot of this deck is still intact post-rotation Sure. which is kind of interesting. So this this sort of thing could become like the new big thing to do, but we'll see. Yeah, and all this was based, this was a Leyline deck, if I remember correctly, right? Just like oh, yeah. more ways of generating mana, getting up to shenanigans, putting those yeah. colorless planeswalkers onto the battlefield. Yeah, and then just doing God knows what with them. Uh, I was I was using Golos, uh, which was fun, but it's like your deck has so much air too, so it's kind of weird, but got to play a sweet mana base where i have like some colorless lands some utility lands a bunch of off-color dual lands to, to work with golos nice. perfect yeah. perfect mana base i'm sure it was flawless it might have been actually I, I think i did a pretty good job with it it was a lot of fun to build if only you had that time back and could have been tuning a deck that has some functionality because i'm sure that was an ordeal it so it's it's good it does its thing the problem is that, like you do your thing and then your opponent just untaps and kills you right and you know it's like the the whole show me your combo thing it's like well i did what my deck is supposed to do and it's it's just like not powerful enough to beat anyone mm-hmm. but in a different world i think it will certainly be powerful enough okay uh, it's worth keeping track of for sure yeah, now, it, like, the time was well spent because I, you know, got to figure out what, like, Karn sideboards are supposed to look like and uh, what a Golos mana base is supposed to look like, and it gave me another way to build around Risen Reef and Leyline of Abundance, which influenced the way I built some of my other Simic decks, and now sure. I know that I get to cross this off the list. So, uh, overall, I think it is very valuable. It also taught me a lesson about, like, what actually matters in these Simic mirrors, and that is, like finding the best end game, like the thing that actually just locks it up and goes over the top of your opponent. Right. Right. Good point. Can you imagine casting mass manipulation and then your opponent just like plays flood of tears? Like even, even if they don't put a, a thing onto the battlefield, right. It's just like, okay, like you spent all this mana and just accomplished nothing. 
Oh, I can imagine it because I've been opponent in that situation several times now where like, I know my opponent is setting up to steal four of my things and I'm like, great, sounds good. Go for it. I'll just kill you on the next turn and and play Flood of Tears. So uh, I have experienced it and yeah, it feels very, very good to beat the Flood of Tears side there. Uh, so, so right now we're we're kind of on the side of flood is probably the best thing that you should be doing in Simic. That's how I fall. Yep. Yeah, I I, have, I basically feel the same way. I think Nexus is very close, and you know maybe Nexus does a better job playing on flood if your deck is set up properly. But flood being kind of the new tool and figuring out exactly what it's capable of, that's going to get my interest for the time being. I want to see how far I can push it. Yeah, and I, I don't think you have to go super hard on Omni. I know that you were playing one copy. I kind of recommended a second uh, just because it. And a lot of this is informed by my experience in Simic Mirrors where I I think you just kind of want it because then the game just sort of ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you try and do this like 10 mana, you know, like, oh, I'm going to like crush of tentacles, lock you out type of thing. I, I think they will find a way to beat you, especially if they're playing Nexus. Obviously, all that changes post-board, but... Regardless, I, I think Flood against everyone else, like against Elementals, even against like Mono Red, Mono White, it, it just seems like basically the best thing you can be doing. Even Like all the decks that have Planeswalkers, it's so good. I played a wild game against Mono White where they had like the ideal Mono White start, like four one drops into Loxodon. And I have to eke and claw my way back in with Cavalier of Thorns and then bouncing and replaying Cavalier of Thorns over and over and over. I must have cast an incredible amount of Cavalier of Thorns. And actually I've had some people suggest to me who have been working with my deck that a one of Nexus of Fate makes a lot of sense just so you don't deck yourself and you could just eventually take all the turns at some point. And I, I don't really hate that. It sounds fairly reasonable to me because you can certainly move through your entire deck with these tier setups. Yeah, the thing with that though is, is if you have Omniscience, you can just flood back the Omni and replay the Omni every time, right? And if you have like a Tamiyo in that loop... I, I mm. think that kind of does the same thing. I Maybe there are some like potential decking considerations where maybe you can't actually get through for lethal if they continually like deploy five creatures every time or whatever. Yeah, just but play I feel blockers like, constantly. Maybe, maybe I, I feel can. like you should be able to find a way. I don't know. Sure. Anyway, if, if I'm decking myself in standard, I, I just count that as a victory anyway. Sure. You you win the, the moral game in that spot. Right. I, you could also just play the one Jace too. I think that'd be fine. Yep. I've considered it. Not there yet, but if people start adjusting, when people start adjusting, I should say, then maybe that's the move we'll make. Yeah. Last up, we have a couple graveyard-centric things to talk about. Tell me about your experience playing Tashar. So I wrote an article last week talking about multiple builds of Tashar, and the card that really sold me was the new artifact. I forget its name literally every time I cast it, Salvager of Ruins. And Salvager of Ruin is three colorless, two, one, sacrifice Salvager of Ruin, choose target permanent card in your graveyard that was put there from the battlefield this turn, return it to your hand. So I proposed a black-white build of Tashar that kind of leveraged Blood for Bones and was doing Stitcher Supplier stuff. And deck was just bad, like straight up bad. It had a lot of error in it, really couldn't get anything done. And then I played some games with the older style of Tashar. And this was a deck uh, I know like Simon Nielsen and Matt Nass had been working on it a whole bunch prior to the release of M20. And I kind of just cut some of the ancillary cards and slotted in a bunch of Salvager of Ruin. 
And man, was the deck just completely juiced. Like I had messed with it before and it was fine. It was honestly like a, a good solid tier two deck uh, with Salvager of Ruin though. You get some level of protection for the other creatures in your deck. You have legitimate just grindy plans where you're like, play Salvager of Ruin, block with Militia Bugler, buy back Militia Bugler, get your train rolling that way. And you create all this battlefield advantage like i was just playing fair against red green for a ton of turns with no problem whatsoever leveraging salvager of ruin and it's also just protecting tashar in key spots and then the loops are so much easier to find i had turn four kills which is an extreme rarity in old tashar builds i think it was theoretically possible but it really didn't happen all that often you need a lot of stuff to go right and now as this package gets really small where you just need diligent excavator tashar salvager of ruin chamber sentry and those cards can be in a bunch of different zones, it's become really easy to set up. There's some execution barriers. I've definitely was having a hard time when people made me do the combo. I had a hard time completing it in time, actually milling my opponent out. And then there's the Nexus of Fate issue where you can't mill out an opponent playing Nexus of Fate. Uh, Sometimes Mm. that matters depending on how much mana they have. Sometimes it doesn't. You can just play a Jace in that spot. So if you're comboing off, you can always juice your graveyard and then do the Vona loop and make infinite mana and play a Jace and draw a card and just win the game on the spot. But I don't currently have a Jace in my main deck just because I think it's pretty bad in all spots except where you're winning the game. It doesn't seem like you could execute on Arena anyway. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I, I roped out with my opponent and had four cards in library left and they got their turn back because I wasn't able to finish on time. And thankfully, they weren't able to do anything. And then I got the turn back and killed them. But yeah, there's there's some concerns with getting this done in time. It takes a lot of clicks. Uh, Arena adds a bunch of extra clicks. And maybe if I practice it a bit more, I'll get fast enough where I can do it reliably. But if I had a paper tournament coming up, I would give Tashar a very, very hard look it's got the combination of speed, resiliency, and a B plan that I really like in my combo decks. It feels a lot like old school birthing pod decks, if you played those at all. It's got the same type of grindy elements, the same type of B plan beat down, and just this combo kill out of nowhere that uh, really recalled those decks for me. Well, it's it's just a very, very bad rally deck, right? Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. It's, it's rally, except instead of like Jace Friends Prodigy, you just have a bunch of unplayable creatures basically that kind of do things yeah and they all mush together to form this weirdo engine that you can leverage eventually and then you win the game which is not to say that the deck is terrible or anything like this this deck will almost certainly make top eights at some point uh when whenever i think of this deck i think about simon and how Mm -hmm. much work he's put into it and everything and it, it would not be surprising to see him play this at a gp at some point and do well yeah, I, I think this deck is quite good as it stands right now. Discount the black-white builds. They're just not there. Too much air. You need all of your cards to replace themselves if you're going to do a combo like this. And things like Stitcher's Supplier, just they, they don't do enough. They leave you empty-handed way too soon. So you really do have to use the Esper-focused versions, do things like Fubble Flip and Vona and cards that do generate card advantage. But once you do, very, very powerful option. And you mean Rona instead of Vona. You're right, Rona. Why would they have cards named Vona and Rona so close to each other in existence? I don't know. They're both just just to confuse me. Yeah, I know. I could never keep those straight in a million years. One thing that I will note, uh, I I agree with you on the Orzov build being a bunch of air for the reasons you noted, and the fact that you were playing a bunch of like corpse knights and stuff like that. 
But I was actually pretty impressed with the builds that just played like three Command the Dreadwords because you get enough cruel celebrants and corpse knights and like chamber sentries and like that just combo kills them. Yeah, so, maybe that's good enough. I, I think it is fine to just spew off all of your cards and then command the Dreadhorde for a bunch and kill someone. I, I think like that is the plan that you should be doing with white black. Okay. Yeah. I had blood for bones, which just didn't carry enough weight. I think that card's pretty impressive, honestly, but in yeah. this deck, it, it wasn't what I was looking for. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is just a command the Dreadhorde deck. Then you have to ask the question, is it better than other existing command the Dreadhorde decks? And I certainly don't know the answer to that, but it's an interesting question. Well, it's, it's different in that, like Sultai Dreadhorde or even Esper, I think do a very good job of setting up kills in the late game or like virtual kills where you end up with like two or three planeswalkers, some mm-hmm. battlefield presence, maybe you gain some of your life back or whatever. This deck has a much lower mana curve, so it's a lot easier to stay alive against things like Mono Red or Gruul or whatever. And then when you cast Command the Dreadhorde, I think, you know, 80% of the time, maybe higher, you actually just win the game on the spot. So I, I think that that's kind of the difference. Uh, your card quality is certainly much worse, but you're better against the faster decks most of the time. And then obviously if you're like playing against Esper and they have Kaya's Wrath and Thought Erasure and Counterspells and stuff, it just seems like a nightmare. So I would not necessarily recommend it, but if you absolutely want to play like Orzov Tashar, I would recommend playing like three or four Blood for Bones and then two or three Commanded Dreadwords. Okay, I buy that. But yeah, Blood for Bones. Uh, how much experience do you have with this card? Most of it is in the Tashar deck. I've seen the Golgari decks floating around based around Molder Hulk. Uh, again, Yeoman 5 working a lot on that archetype. I saw his list. They look nice. They look interesting. They look to be on a power level kind of lower than some of the other stuff going on. With If you're a deck with zero disruption and you don't go as big over the top of stuff as the Simic decks do, and you don't really have a clock, what are you doing exactly? Like, who are you preying on at that point? And I don't have a super clear answer for that, but the card Blood for Bones in those shells looks really promising. I will say that. Yeah, Blood for Bones just strikes me as, you know, this card that kind of like exists in a mid-range world where... You know, maybe you're sacking some Cavaliers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're putting a bunch of Molder Hulks onto the battlefield. But realistically, you're just sitting underneath all of the truly impressive stuff in the format. Like, you can Blood for Bones, you draw some cards, put them t- things onto the battlefield, and then you just lose the Flood of Tears. Yeah. So, what? again, yeah, I agree. What are you doing? You know? Uh, I, I do think it's a cool card. I think it's sweet. And this might be another thing like post-rotation. Right. But for right now, I am not seeing it. Blood for Bones is good in the same world that like Liliana Dreadhorde General is good. And yeah, that, that card's pretty far from good right now, unfortunately. So yeah, at some point, a powerful card for sure. Not denying that, but something has to change if it's going to be a big part of the format or it just has to find the right target. And I haven't seen it yet. Yep, same. I mean, we, we kind of have the same issue. It's like there's, there's Mono Red and then there's... Things like Nexus of Fate that go way over the top. And then Esper is the one mid-rangey kind of control deck that's able to compete in this world because they have Thought Erasure, D-Spark, a lot of good answers, Mm -hmm. some life gain. And now they're even playing like Command the Dreadhorde as a way to compete in the late game with some of these decks. Uh, But for the most part, like these small ball-y mid-range decks, like they, they just can't really compete, which is why I look at 
the rest of this Cavalier cycle, like Cavalier of Gales, Cavalier of Dawn specifically, where it's like, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, this is just not the format for you. Cavalier of Flame, I think, has potential because you actually have setups where the card just can kill them outright, but it's not easy. I only want to object because I have been playing Cavalier of Gales, but it's essentially Cavalier of Thorns five through seven. And if you gave me the option to just play Cavalier of Thorns five through seven, I wouldn't be playing Cavalier of Gales. I just want more of that like big comes into play effect to play after Reign of Tears, but or excuse me, Flood of Tears. But but yeah, you're right. On the whole, as those cards just read on their face, doesn't feel like the right format. Isn't this just better than Cavalier of Gales for what you're trying to do? I would have to think about that. I've appreciated Cavalier of Gales as a way to kind of refresh my engine and uh, Risen Reef setups are real good off Cavalier of Gales as you try and get bigger and bigger. And yeah, I believe that. And you can go Cavalier of Gales into Cavalier of Thorns and clear out your additional ley line of abundances in the late game. So I found uses for it. I get that on its face, it doesn't read as well as Nissa, but I think as far as the engine I'm working with, it's a better fit. I'll check that assumption, though. I mean, there'll they'll come a point where I'm sure I'll try out Nisses as well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is like, oh, look at all this cool value that I'm accruing. And then mm-hmm. you just lose to something else. And it, it seems like it just lives in the blood for bones world to me, where I would much rather have Nissa have the mana boost. You get to keep the lands through the Flood of Tears because it's non-land, which is probably pretty sick. Allows you to actually close the game. Yep. And then it gives you like a backup for if you're playing Hydroid Crisis or multiple copies of Omniscience or whatever, like it gives you a way to actually hard cast those cards. Actually cast them. Yeah, maybe that's something I'll have to check in with uh, over the next couple of days. Yeah, th- this is the deck that I am the most happy with right now. Agreed. Feel the same. Cool. Anything else we want to talk about for the M20s? What about... Our raptor friend, Marauding Raptor, seemingly putting up some pretty good stats thus far. People seem pleased with red-green setups. you have any experience with Marauding Raptor yet? I watched a few people stream on Twitch when I could not get into Arena, mm-hmm. and I was not super impressed. I do think that if you play Marauding Raptor and then curve out, you're doing some potentially powerful beatdowny things, but nothing that really seems better than normal gruel to me. Okay. I played with it a bit. Uh, You know, I'm not a Gruel fan. Something about those decks just doesn't speak to me. And I reached the point in the late game where I am uncomfortable playing off the top of my deck. Not to say I will never do it, but like I need these decks to be in order of magnitude better than other options for me to be playing them. It didn't feel like Marauding Raptor brought these decks to that point. The explosive draws were nice, but sometimes they don't come and you just sit there with this kind of inane battlefield and hoping that whatever you pull off the top is suitably powerful. And it often is. Don't get me wrong. I don't know. I I think there's probably a Galta focus build of these decks that I would be more inclined to play, but the lists I've seen thus far, which are just kind of like two Ceratops, usually four Ripjaw Raptors, and then the top end of the curve is actually charging Monstrosaur. Not 100% sold on those. Yeah, me either. I mean, it, you are on a solid beatdown plan, which I do like. However, I think that this sort of deck appears to be very, very weak to Cavalier of Thorns. Mm-hmm. And this is 
kind of similar, but also different. I saw Cedric play against BBD a little bit. Cedric just shows up with some crappy mono green creature deck, right? And BBD just plays like a Cavalier of Thorns and shuts down everything. And it's like, you need something to get over the six toughness. You need yeah. like Collision Colossus, uh, Vivian, maybe Domri, something along those lines. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Cavalier of Thorns is one of the biggest brick walls we've ever had the pleasure of playing. Shuts down all these big dinosaurs pretty effectively. It is nice. Good call on that one. Like I said, blind squirrels, nuts, etc., etc. Anything else you've played over the last few days that you really got to get in as we wrap up our kind of quick review here of M20? I like doing this. I like calling out the assumptions we made. I like talking about what we got wrong, what we got right immediately in the aftermath of finally playing with these cards because it there's just like this sense of clarity that comes down upon you. And it comes pretty quickly, honestly. I don't have to play a million games before I start understanding these cards much better, but I have to play some. Otherwise, you'll always miss some context, some neat little trick, just some some way the cards line up against the format. And over the past day, I really feel like I picked up a ton of knowledge about this set. And uh, it all makes the set seem very, very impactful. Yeah, I mean, we, we did the podcast and you know, thought about it, talked about the format, etc. And then I watched the the streamer showcase event thing, whatever you call it. And it, it took me like an hour before I'm just like, okay, time to check all of the things that I initially thought. And this is what reality is basically. And then me playing over the last day and a half or so was basically just like fine tuning my lists and, you know, figuring out like how impactful the sideboard stuff was because everyone was only playing best of one and mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. Just kind of like fine tuning those ideas. But I agree. It does not take long to just like, you know, see Risen Reef on the battlefield and see Cavalier of Thorns, like brick walling people and like setting up command the dread hordes or whatever. And you're just like, yeah, OK, these things are just actually legit. This is what the format's about now. How about a shout out for Leafkin Druid, which is a card I don't even think I read when I was going through the spoiler, probably just glossed over. I put that in a bunch of my decks. I thought it was fine. It's been dope. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it it gives you another thing for Risen Reef. You get a little bit of a bonus later on Mm -hmm. for decks that are not trying to play like Cavalier of Thorns and Mass Manipulation. I think you can get away with uh, Leafkin Druid over something like Paradise Druid. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think Incubation Druid is pretty far and away like a better two drop than Paradise Druid. Yeah. So that's that's basically been my shell for Leyline of Abundance decks has been Leafkin Druid, Risen Reef, uh, Incubation Druid, Land War Elves, and the Leyline. Yeah, I've had some spots where I would preference Paradise Druid because of mana requirements. But on the yep. whole, I agree that you'd rather go in that direction where you can use Leafkin Druid and get a few extra triggers out of that Risen Reef. Yeah, absolutely. It's been good. All right. So what what's on the docket for next week? I guess do we have to figure out what is up with Monored and Esper? That's that's what's gonna come. I mean, whether you want to figure it out or not, that's what's going to happen over the next week. The nonsense will die down. We'll get back to people reverting to the decks that previously worked. We'll understand what we have to do to have successful matchups there. I I do think Esper is still fine. I think the combination of Thought Erasure into Teferi is going to have a hard time ever being bad, quite frankly. Like, it's just a very, very good thing to be doing. And 
I do think we've gotten a lot of counterplay options to it now. It's going to have to figure out how it's dealing with Ceratops. So we'll have to check in on how that deck has evolved. And also, it just seems like the tide was kind of already turning against them as far as Nexus went, because they weren't hard targeting the deck anymore. And we have to see if that continues to stick around, if Nexus continues to make its presence felt, talking about old decks returning. But yeah, that's what's going to get filled in, the context of these old decks in the format and where exactly they lie. People cut their heroes and weren't playing enough D Sparks. Yeah. That's that's why Nexus won. Oh, 100%. I, I mean, I think that's unquestionable. But also, in a world where Nexus doesn't exist, you better do that. Otherwise, you're falling behind the arms race. And that's part of the rotational nature of this standard is that we always knew Nexus was going to come back at some point. There was just going to be a right. window. It was hard targeted right out the gate, got kind of blown up in those first few events. and But we always knew the clock was ticking before it would come back. Yeah, and now we get to play like beatdown Nexus decks, so who knows mm-hmm. what's going to happen. Yeah. All right, that that is it for this week. Uh, every week we do solicit the wonderful people in our Discord, our patrons, for questions that they might have for us this week. We pick uh, our favorite question, and we were giving away some OG game podcast sleeves to the person whose question we picked, but I I just ordered some arena deckless pins, my friends, Mm -hmm. and I'm out of town, but they're, they're at my house, but I I think I'm going to start giving away the pins as the, the question reward thingy. And is this the switch? Is this going to be the one where you start? Okay. Okay. So grats to the winner this week for getting the first ever arena deckless pin into their hand. And uh, I, I think this is going to be it. I, I want to make these pins like relatively exclusive just because so I only think for the question. That's the only way to get them. That sounds cool. I mean, I might I might think of some other ways to like give them out, but like there's going to be no master distribution of these things. OK, so a very rare piece of arena deckless merchandise, uh, other rare pieces of arena deckless merchandise shirts going to be headed out soon to our patrons. Yep. I know those are being worked on by the people at Coalesce. Is that correct? Correct. And uh, also arrived at my house are some foil arena deckless playmats for the highest tier of our Patreon. Nice. Can't wait to see. I saw some pictures, actually, uh, of what those look like. I haven't seen them in person yet, but uh, they look dope in pictures. Yeah. So hopefully uh, I'll, I'll be back home after MC Barcelona, probably. And then I'll be able to get all this stuff out. So very excited. Nice. And then working on getting some arena deckless sleeves and whatnot. Doing the best I can. But a uh, question this week comes from Breeze. And Breeze asks, do, do some of the early existing deck possibilities like Tashar and Vampires that are rotating improve the chances that Historic is a format people will actually want to play? Uh, essentially, getting to play the standard for longer doesn't look like a bad thing anymore. And... I don't know how purposeful that was. I do think that there were things in Ixalan block that were amiss, like vampires, dinosaurs, pirates, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And the last couple sets have added a lot to those archetypes. And I think even uh, Icon is a, a pretty reasonable get for those sorts of decks. So I do think that that is cool. And we haven't really talked about historic or thought about historic I mean, maybe you have, I haven't, I guess, but uh, I, th- I think that that is very interesting and does kind of make me more interested in this format, actually. 
Well, I think I think we should go ahead and define exactly what historic is in case people haven't heard the news. Historic is going to be the supposedly arena only format that covers cards which are rotating from standard. So essentially every card that's on arena is going to be part of this historic format. And man, do I have some huge issues with this format. Just tremendous, tremendous issues. They basically came out- Hit me. Well, they basically have come out and said it's a fun, casual environment and a a way to keep playing our cards in a fun and casual environment. Do you think I've spent thousands of dollars on my arena collection because I was hoping for a golly gee whiz. I sure hope we get a fun, casual environment to play these very expensive pieces of digital cardboard in. No, I want a competitive format. I want a ladder. I want an interesting metagame to explore. I want opportunities to play in tournaments. There was all these promises that another format was coming, that another format was coming. And I was like, sure, absolutely. Obviously, there's another format coming. You don't just leave cards worthless. That doesn't make any sense. You take care of your user base. You give them options. You make sure there's an interesting format for them to play when the time comes and put tournaments in it. You know, Give them a reason to be excited that they still have all these cards in their collection. And then to come out and announce a fun and casual format. And this is not to knock fun and casual play. I'm all about it. Play magic the way you love it. That's one of the great things about magic. There's plenty of space for competitive and casual and commander and every form of magic. And if that's what you love, go for it. That's great. But I purchased a bunch of these cards thinking I was going to have competitive opportunities and shying away from that makes no sense whatsoever to me. And Okay, wait, I'm going to take that back. You know what? It makes perfect sense to me because I can give you a very good reason why you would do this. Do you want to guess what that reason is, Jerry? Do you have any any guesses? No. Money, I'm, Jerry. I'm excited. It's money. Oh, it's work. always money. The answer <laughs> is always money because you're concerned that if you give people a non-rotating format they can play to rank up and level up, then they don't go spend money on new standard cards. Now, maybe that's me being pessimistic Mm. and a little nasty. And that's not actually what's going on here, but that's the clearest and most simple explanation I can come up with. And that's usually where you should look. If you're trying to understand a corporate decision, like why would you not provide this service to your players? And that's what I come up with. And that makes me so sad because that's right. You will make more money that way. Definitely will sell more standard cards, but you're doing so at the cost of player retention, player satisfaction, and you're taking a short-term gain as opposed to a long one. Instead of keeping your player base happy and engaged, you're just saying, we're going to have them funnel more money into this product. And again- But quarterly earnings. I, I know, I know. And you're always beholded, beholding to the shareholders, and I get that. And this- <laughs> You know, it's so hard to make these arguments and not sound like you're attacking someone in particular. That's really not my goal here. Like, I don't think anyone has purposely bad and greedy intentions. I think they have masters that they serve. And those are higher ups or eventually shareholders or Hasbro as a whole. And I get it. I know it's a tough position and I don't want to sound like I'm attacking individual stakeholders. But just as a whole for this platform, I don't understand why you would go this way. It's so frustrating. I was excited to start exploring this format, to start understanding this format, to see what... what I mean, just having a new way to play Magic. I appreciate that. I used to love Block Constructed. I still love Block Constructed. Just give me new decks to build. Give me new things to explore, and I'm happy. And by calling this a fun and casual format, 
and taking it outside of competitive play, you've taken away all my reason to explore it. And maybe it's short term. Maybe it's just because it's not very interesting right now because it's just going to be standard plus, basically. There's not going to be a, a much of an ad. There'll be one new set added to the card pool after this rotation. I get that. Not the most compelling format. Maybe you just want to wait until it's more appealing. But that seems a little silly to me. And I'd rather just have the format, let us figure out what's interesting about it. And I don't know, you can make the argument that maybe there should have been Kaladesh and Amonkhet ads. I didn't really feel super strongly about that. But if that's what it took to give us an interesting format right off the bat that we could start playing immediately and have use for these rotating cards, then I would have been okay with it. You know, we would have figured out what cards were broken. There might have been bans eventually, but that would have been fine. It would have been a new, interesting thing. And instead, I get nothing. And I kind of feel like my rotating cards are a little worthless right now. Well, we always knew that that might be the case, right? I honestly didn't believe it would. I I had faith that it just didn't make sense to me. Why, when you have this out of making an interesting competitive format, would you not just take it and keep your players happy? Like, And again, I know the answer. I I already told you the answer. It's money. Yeah. I mean, it it does make a lot of sense where it's like, oh, hey, this vampire deck is cool, right? Uh, Oh, standard rotation happened. I can't play it anymore. Well, I'll just, you know play on the historic ladder and you know not buy packs of the set or not draft the set and that makes a lot of sense to me i could totally see that happening a lot but at the same time you gotta understand that another master that like wizard serves is the player base and if there is enough demand for like a historic ladder or historic tournaments like you gotta think that that those things will come eventually maybe not i don't know i mean my answer is yes but i also thought they would come now so I, I just, I don't know. I mean, I don't understand why later rather than now. And yeah, maybe that's all it takes. Maybe it just takes a little bit of wanting, but like this format's kind of DOA, right? Like nobody's going to be interested if you don't give them a reason to play. And then you can use that as justification to say, well, nobody plays it anyway. So we're not going to have a ladder for it. Yeah. Yeah. So you can set up this thing where it's like, oh, well, like we're giving you a format to, play your old cards with an arena you can't be mad at us and then people will say well no one plays the format it's like well then you know that's your fault right like y'all should want to play the format it's like well if you don't support it we're not going to play it so yeah it's just this weirdo catch 22 yep but hey you know you complain on twitter right like that's (laughs) that's how we get things done that has been my approach i did put out a tweet complaining about it and now i'm releasing this podcast complaining about it and i don't like being I hate complaining. I really do, especially because things I'm loving this set. I love magic. I always love magic. And all this complaining just comes from a place of like wanting, wanting it to be the best thing possible. But I realize it doesn't sound that way. It just sounds like negative and whiny, but what can you do? This is how things change when you make your voice heard, when you say why you're displeased and hopefully this won't be any different and people will react to dissatisfaction. But honestly, I haven't seen all that much, discontent over it it was like a thing for a minute but you know i don't see any big voices speaking out in favor of having an immediate historic ladder and it just doesn't seem like people are all that interested right now and maybe it came at a time when we were more focused on other things and there's the op conundrum going on and two new sets just came out and we're kind of inundated with news and outrage and basically nobody's got time for this outrage right now but maybe at some point the community will rise up and we'll get a meaningful historic format to play. Well, it's also 
not quite time yet, right? Like we can right. complain now, but we don't know what the impl- implementation is going to be. I'm sure once it drops and people are interacting with it, they yeah. will have their complaints, you know? Yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me to not have the two sets on Arena that are coded already and find some way to like remaster them or re-release them or whatever and just like try and make this format as different from standard as possible, at least off the bat. Right. At least if you are trying to actually get people to play it. Yeah, I think that's the big question right there. Are you actually trying to get people to play it? And we don't know. So I think I did a really bad job of answering Breeze's question. Yes. Sorry about that, yeah. Breeze. I, I was just a little excited about this other thing going on. But I, I do like calling out these tribal synergies and hitting up Ixalan cards, not only for the historic format, which will eventually exist, but I really like it for standard as well. I like these cards getting a shot to shine. Specifically, vampires, I think, is a tribe that really uh, needed a little juice, deserved it. There's a lot of really cool vampire cards that I'm excited I now have the chance to play with and explore. So does that make historic a format people want to play? Depends if there's a ladder. And that'll always be the determining factor. Yeah, but either way, I think this is just capitalizing on a missed opportunity to actually have some of those Ixalan tribes do well and see play and stuff like that. So yep, uh, it it makes sense for it to show up immediately before it rotates because save vampires is good, right? It's like then you have to spend a bunch of money acquiring old cards. Yeah. Gotcha. (laughs) Hooked him in. That's game. Good luck.